0: Morning. How are y'all doing? Good, good. That's enthusiasm. And welcome online. You can be enthusiastic at home. You have to be really enthusiastic if we're going to hear you, but glad you're here. Um, If you have a Bible, would you open it to Matthew chapter 16, please? We are continuing our series in The Church Jesus Died For. If you're uh, newer among us, series is going to last up to the Christmas season. After the first of the year, then we're going to launch into an extended series on the book of Mark. But this series, we're not even particularly breaking a lot of new ground for people that have been part of church for a long time, as much as reminding ourselves of the things that are actually foundational. Because over time, it's easy for things to get kind of cluttered and for us to uh, kind of major on minors and minor on majors and And those kinds of things and so we're just trying to recapture a clear sense of what is it that jesus had in mind when he died to create his church and uh then what does that mean for us Uh, because we all have our own expectations our own hopes and our own dreams and many of those things are are good as far as they go but we want to bring all of that under um under the direction and lordship of christ so that's what we're looking to do um in this series i i heard this um Interaction recently, and I uh, thought I'd share it and see what you guys think of it. Uh, a missionary was interacting with a, uh, uh, a person that he had gone to share Christ with, and uh, they'd, they'd known each other long enough that the, uh, the person he was sharing with was a little bit more willing to just say what was on his mind. And so what he said was this He said, um, I think that when we die, meaning the, the people group that, that was being. Um, interacted with. When we die, we go to be with our God. And when you die, you go to be with your God. And when I heard that, I was immediately just kind of arrested by that statement, and it really was sad to me. And uh, if, if I can use the word without being in any way harsh, it feels naive to me. When we die, we go to be with our God. When you die, you go to be with your God. And the reason it struck me is because it is precisely true. And that's precisely the problem. When we die, whoever we are, we go to be with our God. And the naive portion came in that that statement was given like, well, this is a good thing when it's the worst possible thing. There's only one true God who reveals himself who shines light and opens our eyes and comes to us with unvarnished truth wrapped in unfailing love. And then there's a pretender who is at work in this world, who is not a god at all, but who is a master manipulator, who will offer us anything, and usually doesn't even have himself in view. Remember what it says in 1 John Chapter 5, the entire world lies in Satan's lap. And just prior to that, in chapter 2, it says, Don't love the world, the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the things that really feel good in the moment, the things that make us look good, the things that make us feel good about ourselves, the stuff we can amass, so many of the things that we live for in this world actually aren't of the Father, but of the world, the world which lies within Satan's power. And I thought of this verse when I heard that phrase, we go to be with our God and you go be with your God. And this is what made me so sad. Paul is talking and he says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's like, yeah, there's a God in this world, and he's blinding us. And the paths that we seek, the paths that we follow, there's really only two. One has a million different expressions, and they don't feel like they're the same path, but they are. And then there's the path that Christ has laid out. And when we die, we go to be with our God. Here's what it says about the God of this world, Satan himself, in Revelation chapter 20. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. That's where he is going to be. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. In other words, there's an evaluation based on all the things done in life. But listen carefully. The evaluation isn't whether they wind up in heaven or not. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, there's this one book that has to do with who's your God. And if you're in this book, you spend forever with him. And if you're not in that book, regardless of all the other things that you've done, you spend forever with your God. That's why that statement was so sad. It was so troubling to me because here this person actually got it right, and that was the problem. If you have your Bible, would you open to Matthew chapter 16? We're going to look at um, really familiar verses, which is kind of the strategy for this whole series because um, I want to spend a lot of extra time just really wrestling with implications. So I want passages that are familiar that we don't have to spend a ton of time unpacking the passage itself um, so that we can really kind of engage with the overarching concept here. Um, when we die, we go to be with our God. When you die, you go to be with your God. Um, that was actually a phrase used by a taramara who is, uh, that's a tribal group in northern Mexico, Um, the largest and actually the poorest of all the indigenous peoples in Mexico. And uh, I met the Taramata people one day after I met you. That is, if you've been around here long enough to have been here when I came, which is like Ken and Mary and like four other people in the room. So one day, Ken, after I met you, I met the Taramata because we first attended here, we'd finished ministry at another church, finished Talbot in uh, the spring of 1989, and so July 2nd, 1989, that Sunday, we came to church here, we left, we threw our cars in the, our cars in the bag, we threw our bags in the car, uh, my car is actually small enough if I could throw it in a bag, but... Um, <laughs> We threw our bags in the car, headed to the airport, and the next day we found ourselves in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Northern Mexico amongst the Tarahumara people, July 3rd, 1989, is when we first met them. Now, when we went there, we were going to help um, Tony and Lauren Finch, um, who Tony is, by the way, Davette's brother, um, and been missionaries since just slightly before that, and been part of our missionary family here at Redemption Hill for a couple of decades now, I think. Uh, But we went there to visit them and and to help them finish up their house, because they just moved into the tribal area and had been granted permission to build a house, and they knew of my ninja building skills and said, here's a paintbrush, don't do anything drastic. Um, So we went down there to help with that and and then met the people. When we went in 1989, there were about 100,000 Tatamata people, and there were it's always hard to tell exactly, but there were a handful of believers, less than 20 probably throughout the whole tribal group. We went down two weeks ago to encourage the Finches and check in on the ministry and got to go to that same house. It's still standing, the paint didn't fall off. It's great, I did my one job well. Um, A lot of things have changed and there's a, there's a really thriving Tatamata Church. In 1989, when we went there, out of 100,000 people, there were maybe less than 20 believers. In, what is this, 2023? 2023, when we went there, Tony, again, said, it's hard to pin this down, but he said, out of 100,000 believers, there are I mean, about 100,000 people, there are about 5,000 believers. From 1989 to today, from 20 to 5,000, that's a pretty significant shift. How does that happen? That's the question. How does that happen? And that's why I had you turn to Matthew chapter 16. And I want to read you two verses that are familiar and that we just need to re-anchor in our minds. Peter's just confessed that Jesus actually is Christ. He's had that insight from God. There's interaction, and here's what Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right? There's that phrase in there, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Many of us are familiar with that verse and you may be familiar that there's debate on exactly how to understand Peter and the confession that's made and, and how does that interface with all of the church? And those are important questions. We won't unpack them today um, because the fundamental truth is very clear. Jesus is making a profound statement. He's saying, I will build my church, and not even hell will stop it. I will accomplish what I've laid out to accomplish. I have people that I will have chosen from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and they will all be part of my family, and nothing will stop me, not even hell. How do we get from a place where it's difficult to get there? Nobody knows Christ. The missionaries are just trying to find their footing. And and a number of years later, there's 5,000 believers. There's a church that's planted churches that are planting churches. And it's just popping up all over the place. We could look at different human kinds of explanations. And they have a place. They have a role. But at the foundation, here's the reality. Jesus said, I'll do it. And he keeps his word. I will build my church. That's what I'm about. I am on a mission. I have people that I have known before the foundation of the world. They are mine, and I will reach them. I will build my church. While we were there, we got to connect with a lot of different people. One of them was there when we first went, although I don't think we met him. His name was Nesephro. And Nesephro was the chief, that was the title that he had, kind of a uh, semi-official, semi-symbolic um, role of leading the people and helping make decisions. So he was the one who said, yes, you can build, and here's where you can build. He actually gave them part of his land to build their house on. Um, he wasn't a believer. He wasn't all that interested, but he was listening. So Nisefro, um was a major player. In, in, their, in their little village of about 400 people, um, he was the big man. And that meant he was always drunk because they had a lot, of, a lot of parties, they had a lot of occasions, they had a lot of official activities, and that always involved a lot of drinking. So whoever the chief is would pretty much spend his whole time drunk. And so we were there in 1989. In 1990, just as the missionaries are getting established, the Finches, and then there was another couple with them, um, just as they were getting established, there was a, a party going, so they went to the party. They knew there would be a lot of drinking and they'd have to deal with people who were in various stages of sobriety, but they wanted to connect with people. When they got there, some people came rushing out to them and said, the old man is dying, the old man is dying, the old man is dying. And what's going on? So they took him into an internal room and there was, there was Nicephoro. Now it turns out Nisefro at that point was a little bit younger than me, so I'm not sure why they called him the old man who was dying, but they did. And uh, they closed the door, and uh, Nisefro. There's there's no kind way of putting this, so I'll, I'll keep the details sparse, and you can fill in whatever level of blanks you want to fill in. But he basically lowered his drawers, and there were parts of his body that were supposed to be on the inside that were on the outside. He had a prolapsed colon and the two missionaries looked at each other and said that doesn't look good that doesn't look healthy there's no way we can transport him safely Ew. so they did what missionaries do they they served and um, they did their best and were very careful, and by the end of their interactions with Necephiro, his colon was back on the inside. And he didn't feel a thing, because he was so wasted, All right? That was Necephiro. When we were there two weeks ago, Necephiro made a point of coming up to the house to meet us, which is not very common. Even, even amongst the believers, it's, it's a very reserved culture, so for him to go out of his way to come and meet us was something. Now Necephoros 90. Now he is genuinely old and in their culture very much so. But now he's a follower of Jesus. A few years after his medical procedure, which, by the way, never had another problem. His GI system has worked just fine ever since then. But a few years after that, listening to the message, he responded and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. So Nisafiro came and he was talking with Tony and Davette and then myself when I came into the room and um, sharing a little bit of his story, a little bit of his heart. And I just want to use a few of his words here. So this is being translated from Tatamara into English by Tony. And at one point as he's translating, Tony got very choked up because of the emotion that Nisafiro put into it. He was very grateful to meet us. And, um, he, you know, he talked about how I was in darkness, but now because of Jesus, I can see. Necephro is fairly recently a widower, and the house, the window looks out and down the hill, and you can see the graveyard just 100 yards away. And so uh, you don't point with your fingers, that'd be rude, you point with your lips. So he pointed with his lips and said, my wife's body is down there drying up but she's not there. She's with Jesus. And when Christ returns, her body won't be in the graveyard anymore. It will be in heaven. Wow. Cool. When we die, we go to be with our God. And then in her case, that's really good news. A little further into the conversation, I don't remember how it came up, but it was that we prayed for him. We prayed for him by name multiple times because there were certain people over the years whose names popped up in um, the prayer list, and Nicephoro was one of them, first because he was the chief and they had to deal with him. Then later he became a believer and then as a chief, he had to try to navigate. How do I do this in a godly way? He would constantly be talking to Tony or Dale, the other missionary saying, what about this? What about this? Seems like I should do this, but I can't do that because a lot of the culture was interwoven with things that he could do and a lot of it was interwoven with things he couldn't do. And as a new believer, he's trying to figure that out. And so he's turning to his friends and getting all the input he can So a lot of prayers went for him over the years. And uh, as we're talking, I think David was the one who said, we've prayed for you. And he was grateful for that, but he teared up. And uh, he said this, don't just pray for me. Pray for everybody out here. Most people don't believe. Pray for everybody out here. There's a big difference between the Sefero in 1989 in this today. And the question is, how do we get from here to here? How did that happen? It's a pretty dramatic shift. How did that happen? And the answer, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And hell will not stop it. I will reach the people I have chosen. They will be mine. And not even hell will get in the way of that. And the is waiting for the day when Jesus returns and his wife is alive again. Or when he goes into the grave and his body begins to dry up, but he will be with Jesus. We also met... um, Well, actually, this one we didn't meet. Um, But one of the things that we did while we were there is um, the first time we were there in 1989, there was a house, one house the missionaries had, and the other one was being built. And so the the house down the hill a little ways, um, that's where we stayed when we were there. Well, those missionaries have since come back to the States. And so that house was just gonna be empty. The tribe had to figure out what to do with it. By that point, a lot of people had become believers. And so people like Nesephira were making the case saying, why don't we just give that to the believers? It'll give them a place to meet, you know. And so they did. So now that's become the foundation for their church building. Only um, the the community there, even though there's about 400 people in the community, on a Sunday they'll have anywhere from 75 to 125 people gather. They need something bigger than the average small Mexican village house. So the, one thing leads to another. They're knocking down walls and building patios and adding new things. And the, the buildings that we saw, buildings, there's like two or three, three of them, depending on how you count them, and this huge platio area. Nothing like when we were there. It's amazing to see. It's wonderful. It's beautiful, and it's it's got a really good sized room where they can meet. And there's a youth room, and there's kids rooms, and there's all these different things that are happening. And that is there because the people worked hard taking that house and transforming it. And the one who worked the hardest was a guy named Prudencio. Prudencio is probably the first Taramata believer. After our partners got there, um, there were three who came to faith at about the same time, don't know exactly, but Prudencio was one of them. He actually um, grew in his faith pretty quickly and dramatically, and he became one of the first elders in the church. Prudencio was also a very ardent evangelist, so he would go everywhere telling everyone about Jesus. He wanted people to know the Lord. What's interesting about Prudencio is he was essentially um, illiterate very little ability to read. And yet, even with that, he grew in his faith and his understanding of God and his word sufficiently to become one of the elders and a key leader in the church. And so he was ministering to the people. But the other thing Prudencio was really good at, his secular skill, if you will, was building. He could build anything. And so he's the one who did most of the building of that church. In fact, they were working on this wonderful patio area that they do all kinds of things in with these pavers that they've gotten from the you know, the ground around there, and he's put it all together. And, and uh, the entrance to the church hadn't been finished yet. And they hadn't figured out, how, how do we do this? And, and Tony said, I don't know. You figure it out. You know what to do. I'm going into town. I got to get some stuff. And when he came back a few hours later, there's this beautiful entry with a cross right in the pavement with the idea that that's how you enter the presence of God and his people as you come through the cross. Prudencio wanted people to come through the cross. They wanted to Wanted the cross to be central. By the way, that's how you come in here. I hope that if that's never occurred to you before, it will ever occur to you again. That you come here, not this room, but the family of God and the presence of Christ only through the cross. Prudencio left that. That's part of his legacy. He's done these things that have made such an impact. And every week, there's all of these people gathering to worship the name of Christ, grow in their discipleship, and bear witness to him in this building that he's largely responsible for. They come across the cross to get in there. We didn't see Prudencio because he has also since passed. We saw his grave and the graveyard. There's two mounds side by side, one for Prudencio, one for his wife with these simple wooden crosses on top. And they are there, if you will, drying up. But they're not there. They're with Jesus. This man who had no clue, had no hope, who was destined to die and be with his God, now has in fact died and is with his God. And it's a totally different picture. And he's left this whole legacy of a life that points people to Jesus and even tangible physical work that he did that makes that possible. How? How do we get from here to here? How do we go from a place where this man is walking in darkness and doesn't even know it and doesn't even care to where he is laying down his life moment by moment so that people might know Jesus and his greatest desire is that they would understand the meaning of the cross. What happened? Jesus said this. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will do this without fail. One other person we met isn't Tatamara. he's just a um, dominant culture Mexican named Enrique, his wife, Miriam. Now Miriam grew up in Mexico City and is well-educated. She graduated university. Um, she actually became a broadcast journalist and had a bright career in front of her and then decided that she had a heart for reaching the people in the mountains, particularly the Tatamara. Her dad, who wasn't a believer at the time, thought, She was throwing away her life, very angry with her, but she she made moves that direction. Somewhere along the way, she got connected with Enrique, and they got married. Now, Enrique has a very different background. Much of his life, um, adult life, was spent in the early years here in the United States. Um, He lived in Idaho. He lived in... um, He lived here in Southern California and he lived in Tucson are the primary places he lived. More specifically, he lived in the Idaho State Penitentiary, he lived in the Chino Men's Prison and he lived in the maximum security federal penitentiary in Tucson, Arizona, where he lived for 10 years. I never asked Enrique specifically what his crimes were, but to wind up with at least a 10-year sentence in a maximum security federal penitentiary, I imagine it wasn't just writing a bad check. I'm figuring it's probably interstate drug smuggling and all the violence that went with that because that's what he came out of. And his journey as a gangster and as a a fairly major player, I think, uh, put him in the prison system here, but in the prison system here, somebody reached him for Christ. And so as he was going through the different prison system, he also was growing in his faith. And eventually... Tucson, where he spent most of the time, he began ministering to the other prisoners in a significant way. He started leading all kinds of people to Christ. As they got out of prison, some of them became pastors, some of them became leaders of various things. And uh, when Enrique got a, out of prison, he got a free ticket to the border and a don't come back. So he was deported. He's not allowed back in the States. But while he was in the penitentiary in Tucson, there was an olive tree on the on the yard, which was the only shade they could fine to really do ministry under. He didn't have a building to do it in. And so that's where he would teach and preach every day. And people would come and learn and grow. And and sometimes new people would show up. One guy showed up one day who he didn't know who he was, but he figured he was pretty important because Pepe showed up with an entourage. And in the prison yard, when you show up with an entourage of muscle, that means don't mess with Pepe. And Pepe kept listening. And Pepe eventually accepted Christ. And Enrique learned Pepe was a lieutenant in the Mexican mafia. So now they're both there, these drug guys in the prison system here trying to live for Jesus. (coughs) When Enrique is is released, he's sent out of the country. Pepe, the same thing. When Pepe gets out, (coughs) excuse me, he asks, Enrique, what should I do? Can't do what I did before. It's like, well, you should start a prison ministry. So that's what Pepe did. Enrique started uh, actually this evangelistic ministry all up and down through Latin America. Along the way in Enrique's ministry, he has this personal encounter with the guy who is now the president of Mexico. He came to one of their um, meetings, and they prayed for him, and I don't know what all happened, but they developed a relationship, which plays into the story of how Enrique has, has seen God work uh, through human connections, uh, because along, along Enrique's journey, he realized, I'm getting older. Um, this traveling is really hard, I should settle down and do some ministry that's more localized. He had some um, rehab centers that were going really well, but it's like, I want to do something broader. His wife had this passion to reach the tribal groups, and he said, that's it. She's a broadcast journalist. I'll do anything for Jesus. Let's start a Christian radio station, which you can't do in Mexico. The, The Constitution says you should be able to, but their FCC says you can't. So you have to start a cultural radio station and share things like the community things and the president's speeches and that kind of stuff. And then you can add Christian programming. So that's what he's done. Very above board. And the idea is I'll run Christian programming during the day and then at night it's a.m. signal. That's when the signal will travel far. Um, We'll do it in Taramara, we'll do it in Tepehuan, we'll do it in Pima, we'll do it in Guadalajara, the, the four groups, and we'll, we'll share the gospel. We'll, the, some of those people have emerging churches, we'll equip them. Some of them have just heard of Jesus and, and they're really kind of at the beginning stages, we'll share Christ, but this will be our opportunity to reach all of this region, which is really important because the, the Tatamara region is incredibly rugged, it's very difficult. Etten and I were watching a, a show, It was what was the name of that show, it was like... Uh, the hardest roads to school or something, you know, you can find on streaming services, most dangerous ways to school. Streaming services offer the most weird little series, and there's one about children around the world who have a really hard time getting to school, right? Because they're traveling through, you know, whatever. And, and one of them is about the Tatamata in Mexico, and they follow this little six-year-old boy named Lorenzo who has to hike for three hours minimum from his home to get to school So you hike on Monday and then you stay there and then Friday you come home. But the hike is through these mountains that are so rugged and a canyon, the Copper Canyon system, there's eight canyons that collectively are bigger than the Grand Canyon and way more rugged. So little six-year-old Lorenzo is walking this trail that's sometimes only this wide and sometimes going like this and he's got to climb 3,000 feet to get to his school. And that's the only school that's within a six-hour walk. Now, this is just not too far across the border, but it's so rugged, it's hard to get there. How do you reach people in a place like that? Well, radio waves aren't hindered. AM radio can go anywhere if the atmosphere is cooperating. And that's what Enrique and and Miriam said, let's do that. So they've started this radio station. It's uh, got the call letters, XE, which is all the northern Mexico radio stations have that, CREO, C-R-E-O which is Spanish for I believe. But for them, it actually means, um, let's see, what does it mean? It means the rehabilitation center of the olive his ministry started under an olive tree and he's done so many rehabilitation centers that's what he named it so it's got kind of this double word play it's all about i believe now that's what's going on and we sat and talked for two or three hours with with enrique and miriam it was pretty amazing and one of the things we did we went out into the yard there's a whole story about how they got the property they got and god's intervened so many different ways but um there's this huge radio antenna sitting there and he said let me tell you how i got that radio antenna um when I realized I needed the radio antenna, I called my friend Pepe, who was the former lieutenant in the Mexican mafia. One of his jobs was communications for the region. Hey, Pepe, do you still have that giant radio antenna on your property? Yeah, I do. Why? I said, I'd like it for my radio station. Come get it. So now the gospel of Jesus Christ is being broadcast courtesy of the Mexican mafia throughout the whole regional area. And the question is, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from, you know, crazy, violent criminals and people who are in such remote places, there's no chance that anyone's gonna be able to interact with them consistently without extraordinary difficulty, to here's a radio station that's still being built out, but that can reach every single one of them, every single night with the gospel, with training, with all kinds of things. How does that happen? Well, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the reason he's so adamant, there's a number, but one key reason is because we go to be with our God when we die. And he is moved by love, that that would be him and not a false God. That that would be a moment of triumph and not one of terror. We can either serve a God who is deceptive And will manipulate and look for ways that he can cause us to sacrifice on his behalf. Or we can serve a God who is straight up and who's defined by his sacrifice on our behalf. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now, the question is, It's always easy to take the theological moral high ground when you're talking about mission. I mean, nobody's going to argue with that unless they just disregard the scripture. Of course, that's right. Why are we talking about that in a series that's about the local church and how we live? Well, I want to read those verses again and point out something. Verse 16, I tell you, you're Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, all of the questions of exactly how this works, notwithstanding, there's something that's very clear. Jesus will build his church, and we are the strategy. We are his strategy. His church is his strategy for reaching his church. He's talking to Peter here. He's going to broaden it out. There's only one strategy. The book of Matthew ends by saying, I am sending you to make disciples, and yet I'm going with you. I have the authority, and I'm with you always. Go and make disciples of all the peoples of the earth. Or Luke, he actually highlights it even more strongly because in Luke, when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, uh, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin, sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. I held my fingers up because that is a carefully structured sentence. It doesn't show in our English text as much, but it is, here's what he did, and there's three parts to it. And they're all given equal weight Part number one, Jesus would die. Part number two, Jesus would rise. Part number three, we would take that message into the world. He gives equal weight to them. That's the strategy of God. Now, Jesus has done things that we never can, so we don't want to in any way minimize that, but we also don't want to minimize what he's called us to, and in a sense, it is very appropriate to say, we have every bit as significant a role to play in God's plan as the cross itself. Because the strategy for that message going out runs right through the church. That's why we have to talk about this as a family. There is no such thing as a New Testament church following Jesus with any kind of integrity that does not have a deep and abiding passion and commitment to reach the world for Jesus Christ. That is the strategy. And it's not just people who are like me, it's people everywhere. In Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And you've, mostly of you probably heard, the word is is, is where we get our word ethnic groups from. It's not political entities, it's every kind of person. And so as a church family, as we look at what is the church Jesus died for, we can look at good teaching and the role of the Bible, and we're going to look at hospitality and generosity. We're going to look at how we serve one another, all kinds of things that matter, and they matter a lot, but most of those things ultimately come back to serve us, and that's great but at the very heart there has to be something that turns us outward. A couple of weeks ago John talked about outward to just right near us, but it has to turn to outward and all the way outward where we're looking to the ends of the earth. He said, I will build my church. I will build it everywhere and amongst all peoples. The gates of hell will not overcome it, but you're my strategy for doing it. And as a church and as individuals within that church, That's what we've got to remember. We've got to be people who are committed to the mission of God in the world. That's the only model of church he's offered. That's the only model of discipleship that you and I would be really committed to, passionate about, and moving towards things that would allow us to really be part of reaching the world. So, Ask a couple of questions of us or maybe give us some things to think about. Again, it's not it actually uh, up for debate. Most people go, yeah, um, but how easy is it for us to kind of neglect that or to kind of let that s- slip off to the side or let that get cluttered or crowded out or justify our way in a million ways of not actually being about that? Now, as a church, let me, uh, let me be quick to affirm, I think this is, at least in my experience, the most missional church I've ever been a part of and the most missional both here and reaching to the ends of the earth. I think that's been defining. But it's been a tough season, right? We planted a couple of churches which took a lot of energy and then COVID comes along and that just kind of knocks everything weird and try to find our foot. And we have not lost our way at all. But I do believe we've lost some momentum. And the question is, what does it look like for us as a family to really engage seriously? Jesus is building his church, and we're his strategy, and that's here in the whole world. What does that mean? So for the last couple of minutes, let me just give you three things to think about, pray about, process, and maybe God will speak to you through one of them or more. The first one is, I think we need to really cultivate a heart that matches God's, which is a heart for the nations, for all the nations. It is easy-ish, right? It's, it's, easy, it's just easy to be selfish. I mean, at least for me, maybe you're better than I am, but it's easy for me to just be selfish. But it's easy-ish for me to have a heart for people that are near, that are kind of like me, that aren't too hard to find or reach. It's a whole different order to say, no, no, How about people that are far away? Far away culturally, far away um, socioeconomically, far away politically, far away ethnically, far away geographically, far away linguistically, people who are very different than me, because the heart of God is I love every single kind of person, whatever their skin color, whatever their language, whatever their culture, whatever their background, whatever their region. I died for every last kind of person. And my church involves every last kind of person and my church is the one that I am going to use to continue the building of the church, which means I have to have a heart that says, not only will I look to people who I easily connect with, but I'll do hard things to connect with people that I don't easily connect with, whether they're just really different than me or they're just really hard to reach. And I think that's a lot harder than we think. It hit me like a ton of bricks a few years ago. Some of you may remember there was a terrorist attack on a magazine in Paris, Charlie Hebdo. 12 people that worked at the magazine were killed and 11 were injured. And the whole earth took notice. I mean, there were all kinds of, it was media coverage was overwhelming. And there was a rally in Paris, a solidarity rally with two million people, including heads of state from 40 countries. And throughout the country, there were another 3.7 million people that were gathering. And the slogan was, I am Charlie. And and it it was attention that ought to be called because what happened to those people was absolutely inexcusable and wicked. But the interesting thing is Charlie Hebdo magazine was pushing the boundaries in every conceivable way. It's not a magazine that I would identify with, one that I would read or one that I would appreciate. They liked to cause trouble. They were irreverent and harsh. Now, that is no excuse for what happened to them. They have the right to live in dignity, but I wouldn't relate to them. And yet the whole world is is rallying as this is going on, they had 60,000 readers and it was all in French the week prior to the attack. The next edition came out, sold 7.95 million copies in six languages. All of the, at least Western world, identified and rallied. Now, that's not a problem. What struck me at that moment is that was about the same time that the Boko Haram had gone into a school in northern Nigeria and kidnapped almost 300 girls. And the best I can tell, a hundred of them are still unaccounted for today. That hit the news too. That got a lot of attention, but it was so disparate. It was so strikingly different. I'm like, how could this be? And I think it's because there was an intuitive connection with these people in France that we didn't have with villagers in northern Nigeria. The irony is, the girls in the school were Christians. I don't see any world in which the the people who were in Charlie Hebdo were Christians. They certainly weren't acting it. And yet... Seemingly, I don't want to judge people's hearts, but it seemed to me that it was easier to connect based on surface culture issues instead of what's really deep. And that just struck me. How deep does that go? How much is that an issue? And how much is that an issue in my heart and in the church of Jesus Christ? Because God's heart is for everyone and every kind of one. And it makes sense that I would connect more easily with some people than with others. But if I'm going to have the heart of God, it is the whole world every ethnic group, every socioeconomic group, every region, every person, Jesus died so that they could be offered new life. Do I have that heart? Am I cultivating that heart? Second thing is, am I encouraging and supporting the mission itself, right? Here, um, 15% of all of our budget goes to missions. We'd love to be able to do more, but that hasn't been sustainable. So we said, we're going to do 15, and then we'll offer other opportunities. So we send teams to like Cambodia, and we need to raise whatever we needed to raise, $40,000 for wells or those kinds of things. There's opportunities to participate financially. Every dollar that I give goes to help missions in a very significant way. Prayer. How am I praying? Out on the patio as you leave, some of the people from our missions team have these uh, things to hand you. This is our missionary team. These are prayer requests. This is, a, this is designed to just keep with your Bible and use as a regular part of prayer. Um, connecting with the missionaries themselves. Befriending them. It's hard coming into and out of a culture. Used to be really hard because you'd be in for, in for one and out for four or in for three and out for, uh, in for one and out for three, depending on how hard your field was. Now, I think it may be even harder because typically, they're out for a year and a half, and then they're back for a summer, then they're out for a year and a half, and they're back for a summer, and they've got churches all over the country. It's really hard. It's really hard. We have to make effort to really connect and show love. Maybe you sent us, and you sent David and I all over the world. Thank you. That's good. That's right. We're ministering on the behalf of this family to other members of this family in other places. Why don't you go too? Why don't you go visit somebody? Why don't you encourage them? These are things that you and I should be thinking about because the heart of Christ is for everyone. He's building his church. The gates of hell won't prevail, but we're the strategy. Finally, if you look at Acts chapter 13, the first three verses in particular, it gives how it happened initially, which is maybe not a pattern as much as it is kind of a summary of how things go. The church in Antioch sent people and there's a sending-going dynamic, right? I did a little math last night, and I think a dozen people have gone out for long-term missions during the time I've been pastoring, and maybe half a dozen have gone out intentionally for a year or two, and then, of course, we've sent hundreds and hundreds of people on short-term trips, Um, There's a sending process where we pray, where we promote, where we fund, where we encourage, and there's also a going process where some of us need to go. Now, I'm convinced that everybody, I'm not exaggerating this word, everybody who's part of the church who's in reasonable health over time ought to go on a short-term trip. I just don't think there should be any exceptions. Why? Because you're gonna make such a great difference over there? Probably not. We do try to choose them carefully so that we don't make a problem, because that can happen sometimes. We wanna do things that matter, but at the end of the day, the big change is in you, and it's in me. And that's a change that will have long-term impact. I think that's important. But I suspect, you know, there's a dozen people that I'm aware of, but maybe there's one or two or three or four more in the room right now that God's already stirring, saying, you know, I know your life's pretty comfortable, But maybe it's time to do something new. I don't know what God specifically has for you. I know for us as a church, this is the model. This is the church Jesus died for. We minister to each other, love each other well, seek to help each other grow. We do all of those things. We care about the community around us. We meet people in compassion and we share Christ. But we have a heart that is for the whole world. When people are unlike us or hard to get to or very difficult or very different, that doesn't stop us. We have to do it wisely. We have to do it well. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, I will build my church out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Read Revelation 7. That's the worship in heaven, and there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered there. How did that happen? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That's how they got there. And you are my strategy for doing it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace in my life, and I pray that you would grow us. Grow our heart, Lord. Passion and care and compassion. Grow our willingness to serve and sacrifice and even to suffer. Draw out from us those that you have for particular roles, but Lord, may we all Be faithful and active and passionately engaged as you build your church that overcomes even hell. We pray this in your name. And Lord, as we give these gifts, I want to just offer them to you as an expression of that, this offering. Lord, is part of furthering that message in this world. Pray that you would use it in Jesus' name. Amen.